Our series, Complications Happen, continues with Episode 5, Error and Catheter Embolism. While these complications are infrequent, they can really have devastating consequences. Joining us today is our guest, Mark Hunter, BSN, RN, CRNI, VABC. He is a Medical Affairs Manager for BD. Mark has been a registered nurse for 27 years, specializing in the fields of critical care and infusion nursing. He's also contributed to multiple peer-reviewed journals, serving on editorial review boards, as well as authoring articles focusing on complication preventions and quality improvements in the delivery of infusion therapy. Mark, thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Great. Today we're going to talk some about air embolism and catheter embolism and the differences between those two. Can you tell me what air embolism is and how does it happen? Yeah, sure. Uh, air embolism is predominantly an iatrogenic complication that occurs when atmospheric gas is introduced into the vascular system. It has been associated with neurosurgical procedures conducted in the sitting position, penetrating and blunt chest trauma, high-pressure mechanical ventilation, thoracentesis, and with infusion therapy. For this talk, we'll focus on air embolism and infusion therapy. Some of the causes of air embolism related to infusion therapy include, but not limited to, vascular access device placement, damage during use, or vascular access device removal. In interventional radiology, literature reports suggest that venous air embolism can be as high as 1 in 3,000 to even 1 in 47 when suboptimal placement care, or removal is occurring. Interesting enough, the report also indicates that despite using optimal techniques for placement, care, and removal, venous air embolism still may occur at a rate of Mm 0.013%. So there's always a risk with uh, central line catheters. Another cause is the accidental introduction of air into the infusion system. This could include air entrapment, in Y sites, Bobcocks, or failure to prime the set completely. It could also occur with accidental disconnection, open port or a leak, and even outgassing of some of the medications that we deliver. So how much air is too much? We all have heard nightmare stories about a syringe full or just a, a little bit in your tubing. How much air is too much? And that is a great question. And unfortunately, um, you know, there's no really good answer for this. Mm -hmm. And the short answer is is it really depends. There are some key factors in determining the degree of morbidity and mortality in air embolism. They are the amount of volume of gas entrainment, the rate of accumulation, the proximity of to the heart that the air is released into the circulatory system, the patient's position at the time of the event, and any underlying conditions. Recent literature suggests that 20 to 27% of healthy adults have what's called a patent foramen ovale without demonstrating any symptoms. Mm -hmm. These patients have a hole between the septum of the heart and these patients would be at high risk from even this small amount of air entering the venous system. 
There was a case report actually published in 2015 um, discussing four professional football players that received pressurized intravenous fluids. Uh, after their infusion, each of them presented with similar symptoms of coughing, chest pain, tightness, and with deep inspiration. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, these symptoms dissipated within 20 minutes for each of these patients. Um, reading through the case study, each of these infusions were infused with a pressure bag to get them in quickly. Okay. Uh, the practitioner did not take into account the air in the bag, um, and uh, in each of these cases, approximately 50 mLs of air was potentially infused in extremely healthy patients, and fortunately, there were no long-lasting effects. Hmm. So the long-lasting effects, what, what can air embolism actually do then? Air embolism can create a plethora of issues. Um, it can be as simple as tachycardia or even bradycardia arrhythmias, increased pressure within, it can cause increased pressure within the arteries, which can lead to right ventricle outflow obstruction and compromised pulmonary blood flow. It can also create an intracardiac airlock, basically, in the pulmonic valves, further reducing that blood flow. Um, if the air is allowed to flow through the heart into the pulmonary vessels, uh, air embolism can lead to inflammatory changes in those pulmonary vessels. These inflammatory changes can lead to secondary injury as a result of this activation and release mediators and free radicals. This can lead to capillary leakage and eventually non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It can also lead to increased resistance of the lung vessels and ventilation perfusion mismatching can lead to interpulmonary right-to-left shunting and alveolar dead space with subsequent arterial hypoxia and hypercapnia. Now, looking at volume, um, air at 0.35 mLs per kilogram per minute can overwhelm the lung's ability to filter that out and allow for the release of air into the arteries at approximately 50% of the time. For an average male adult, that's only 25 mLs of air. Hmm. That's not Once that air lot, enters, yeah. No, it's really not. Once that air enters the arteries, there's a risk of arterial occlusion in the major organs, such as the brain and the heart, causing ischemia. Hmm. Um, what are some of the signs and symptoms we'll see with air embolism? Uh, as we have already discussed, symptoms may or may not be present. If symptoms occur, they can vary from generalized to nonspecific pain in the lower back to life-threatening severe chest pain with the feeling of impending doom. Symptoms include pain in the shoulder and lower back, cyanosis, jugular vein distension, wheeziness or tachypnea, weak pulse, tachycardia, hypotension. Sometimes there could be a loud continuous turning sound heard over the pericardium during auscultation, especially if you develop that lock within the pulmonary valves. Changes in facial expression, um, altered mental status, um, altered speech, numbness, paralysis, 
uh, chest pain, dyspnea, and coughing. Shock with cardiac arrest if the condition remains untreated. Clinicians must be astute to seeing the big picture and have that ability to assess the situation and recognize the signs and symptoms of air embolism. Okay, so as a clinician, if you suspect that there's an air embolism, if you've identified these risks and you suspect that this is occurring, what are some of the interventions? So once you've uh, identified that you believe your patient has air embolism, uh, some of the steps to help prevent further progression are immediately placing that patient on the left side and lowering the head below the heart level. Trendelenburg, if the patient can tolerate. Um, identify the cause and implement actions to prevent any further air from entering the circulatory system. You're going to want to notify your licensed independent practitioner and or the rapid response team if you have one. Um, you know, assess the vitals. O2 saturation, and cardiac rhythms. Uh, administer oxygen as needed and carry out any other emergency measures that are necessary. What are some key steps for preventing air embolism? Well, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And remember, up to 20 to 27% of healthy adults are undiagnosed with a patent foramen ovale. And even a little bit of air entering the venous system can be dangerous. It's important to have the knowledge of these risk factors and also a solid understanding of the products that you are using to prevent air embolism. Some of the steps you'd want to include are ensuring that the administration sets and add-on devices, such as the needless connectors, uh, stopcocks, are primed with solution prior to attaching to the vascular access device. Making sure that you're tracing all the lines from the catheter hub all the way up to the solution container to prevent any misconnections. The use of lure lock designs uh, are extremely important. Lure slips, unfortunately, in certain areas of the world are still predominantly used. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they can separate very easily. Place patients in a position with the vascular access device exit site below the heart level when changing administration sets and or connectors or removing the central venous access device. And this includes pick lines, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to clamp the catheter when changing administration sets and any of the add-on devices to prevent any risk of um, air entering that system. And you want to use air eliminating filters when appropriate. And I always place uh, an inclusive dressing over the catheter exit site. Okay, so that that's a lot of information about air embolism, but I think we covered everything pretty good. We'll move on to catheter embolism. Um, what is this and how likely is it to occur? Catheter embolism is when a piece of the catheter is severed and enters the circulation. Like air embolism, catheter embolism is also a rare complication, but it can also be very serious. Causes include, but not limited to, defective catheters, um, catheter shearing during placement. And with a, what I'm talking about here is when uh, this can occur when you're using a through-the-needle catheter mm -hmm. and, and you advance 
the catheter through the needle, and then you pull back. For some reason, you can't get around a corner or you, you can't advance any further. That pulling back through that needle can potentially shear um, that, a piece of that catheter off. The other way that this can occur is over the needle catheters. Um, when the stylet is partially withdrawn and then the cannula is pulled back over that stylet. And this situation I see a lot of the times when I'm doing training in the hospitals of new nurses placing peripheral IVs. Um, you know, they go to place the catheter, they get into the vessel, they get that flash of blood, they may not be advanced far enough to have the cannula in there and they thread the cannula off. And the cannula is outside the vessel, but the stylet is within the vessel. So when they start to thread, they do not get their flash. And, and I've seen countless times that the cannula is advanced and then they try to pull it back. Mm. And again, in this point, that cannula is off of that stylet, could be bent within in that arm, and as they pull back, they could actually puncture a hole through that cannula, or worse, they could sever a piece mm -hmm. of that cannula off. Also, catheter placement location is, is a key um, risk factor for um, catheter embolism. There is a condition called pinch-off syndrome, and this usually occurs with central lines that are inserted in the subclavian vein, and it's usually closer to the mid, like closer to the mid part of the body. Um, and when the catheter is placed in that area, if it if it enters the subclavian vein behind where the clavicle rides over the first rib. This leaves the catheter exposed potentially when it's in place of that movement of, of the clavicle coming down over the first rib and causing uh, it to pinch off. Mm -hmm. if, if that catheter is left in for long periods of time, that constant pinching of that catheter can lead to a fragmentation. Also, most recently, I heard of a patient where a catheter, a peripheral IV catheter, was placed at the point of flexion. This, this patient was very confused and combative and had a catheter placed in their right wrist. Um, when the nurse went into a set, she was looking at the peripheral IV and noticed that the hub didn't attach to the cannula and that the cannula was actually missing. Mm. She quickly responded by placing a tourniquet above the site and, um, you know, calling interventional radiology and getting the patient down there. Um, they uh, took the patient in and, and looked under fluoro, and they did find the fragmented piece just above the insertion site and were able to remove that um, catheter fragmentation there. Another cause is is accidental severing during use. Um, this can occur if the patient gets tangled in their tubing and accidentally breaks the catheter. Uh, another big one that I've seen numerous times is, is the use of scissors uh, to remove the dressing. 
And unfortunately, um, this, with such close proximity to the catheter, there's the potential that it can be cut. And then another situation that I've seen uh, is what's called twiddler syndrome, especially with patients that have long-term catheters. Um, and, and this is where they actually play with um, the external portion of their catheters. Um, similar to, you know, people curling their hairs, they have this nervous twitch that mm-hmm. they'll actually play with their catheter. Um, we've had numerous patients come into my infusion clinic that they've actually dislodged the catheter and the Dacron cuff is hanging oh. outside of the body, so it's really not in place. Um, so there's that risk also. That's kind of scary. Yes. Um, and finally, catheter rapture due to forced injection. And and I know today with all of the CTs with contrast and the MRIs with contrast, it's important for us to make sure that we're using the correct devices and that they are rated for those high pressures and we do not exceed um, the speed limits that are set with those devices. And also just the excessive pressure from use. Um, There was an article done a few years back called What's Physics Got to Do With It? And it really demonstrates uh, how much pressure can be applied to those catheters. Applying 3 PSI to a 3 ml syringe creates a little over 28 pounds of pressure in that catheter compared to a 10 ml syringe with that 3 PSI pressure applied only creates a little bit over 10 PSI within that catheter. So a great thing to think about, um, especially if you have an occluded catheter, it's not a great idea to go down to a smaller syringe to try to flush that out. You can potentially break that catheter tip. And as long as when you do flush the catheter, you have a nice, easy flush, you should be okay with using a smaller syringe, say, to give a medication. It's when you meet pressure and you're resisting that you should be avoiding those smaller um, syringes. Yes, that's a great point, and yes, you're correct on that. Okay, good, good. Um, so what are signs and symptoms that we have catheter embolism that's occurred or could be occurring? This one's also interesting and, and really mimics air embolism, too. So the patient can be asymptomatic to symptomatic. Okay. Um, there was a case report. Uh, published some years ago uh, where a patient had uh, had long-term antibiotics and had a PICC line in place. Um, once her antibiotics were completed, the PICC line was removed, the patient went on with her daily life. Um, she went back to her physician about six months later, not feeling that well. Um, they ended up doing a chest x-ray, and they found an 11-centimeter section of the PICC line retained within her valve on her heart. Oh, my. Um, yeah, they went ahead and tried to remove that PIC segment, segment. However, every time that they went to pull the, the PIC line out, it caused her to go into arrhythmias. Mm. She ended up having to, they ended up stopping that procedure, and they left that piece within her heart. Um, she's on long-term antibiotics, 
and it's just non-retrievable, just the way it's positioned within her heart. That's a scary thing. Yeah, other than, you know, not, you know, they would have not noticed unless she came back in and and did that chest Mm x-ray. So, you know, another thing is it could be uh, masked, the symptoms could be masked due to another diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, Working in a long-term acute care facility, um, we had a patient that kept having recurring bloodstream infections. Um, She had two central lines in, those were removed over the two-month period. Uh, She had another PICC line placed, that was removed, and they were treating her peripherally for two weeks. Um, They wanted to put another PICC line back in her. We went in, placed the PICC line, it was placed nice and easily. Uh, We did a chest x-ray post-placement, and when we looked at the chest x-ray, we saw a shimmer within the ventricle. And we it wasn't attached to the pick. It just looked off. So we ended up doing a PA and lateral on this patient, and we noticed something that was within the heart. Um, so we ended up doing a fluoroscope on the patient, and we found that she had... Uh, a guide wire retained in her heart. A guide wire. Uh, from a guide wire. Oh, goodness. And this was what was causing her bloodstream infections for the last oh. three months. Um, and that was in from one of the central line placements prior to her mission to the long-term care facility. So it was just by luck that we picked up this guide wire on the x-ray and then pursued it further because it did not look like the pick that we had just placed. And sure enough, it was a guide wire. They were able to retrieve it, and, uh, you know, her infections went away after That's that amazing. point. Mm-hmm. So some of the other general vague symptoms that can occur from catheter embolism is cyanosis, shortness of breath, some chest pain, hypotension, tachycardia, um, increased central venous pressure, uh, fainting or loss of consciousness, uh, the arrhythmias, and uh, pulmonary thrombosis if the catheter migrates through the heart and into the lungs. Um, So if we are suspecting a catheter embolism, what's something that we can do? What are some interventions a nurse can do for that? So again, if you're expecting something like this. Um, if it's a peripheral catheter or a pick line, you know, if you think if it's broken off in there, apply a tourniquet above that site to see if you can stop the progression of that catheter and immediately notify your licensed independent practitioner. Um, radiographic confirmation as, as these are all visible based on the contrasts that are within the devices. Mm-hmm. Um, surgical removal may be necessary and, you know, continue to monitor that patient closely for any signs of distress. Okay. So I think an important thing to bring up here, too, is that as the nurse removing one of these devices, you really do need to be aware of what the length of that device is, which should be documented somewhere within the, the medical record. 
Correct. That's a really good point um, uh, that you want to make sure that there's nothing retained within that device or within that body. Sure, because as, as the one you mentioned earlier with the 11 centimeters that was um, mm -hmm. retained, had they known the length of that catheter, they may have caught that a little bit sooner or that the fact that the catheter looked like maybe the edges were rough on it or something. So there's a couple of little assessment things that can be done when you remove the catheter as well. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point, Michelle, that, you know, it's it's really important to have that ability to know what the length of the catheter that you're removing is is so that uh, you can make that good assessment and, and know whether there's anything retained within the patient. Sure, yeah. Um, other than, than that, or is there anything we can do to prevent catheter embolism? Yeah, there there's some great key prevention things that we can do. You know, check your product integrity prior to insertion and after removal. Mm -hmm. um, avoid points of flexion for insertion of the device. Again, you know, not only does it affect the functionality of your device, but potentially can lead to catheter fragmentation. Do not reinsert a stylet through the catheter or withdraw the catheter back into the needle introducer. Um, educate your patients also regarding the cares and activities while the catheter's in place. So your patient's going to be your best advocate. Um, you're placing that catheter and, you know, he's going to have, he or she is going to have uh, a variety of clinicians caring for that catheter. So educating that patient, you know, not to use scissors around that site, um, you know, flushing, all that helps. Mm -hmm with prevention. Never use scissors near the catheter and teach patients the importance of using nothing sharp around their catheters. Okay. Always follow manufacturer's guidelines on flushing, syringe size, compatibility with power injectors. Uh, do not use force to flush an occluded catheter. And do not remove the catheter against resistance. If resistance may be due to transient vasospasm, and continuing attempts to remove that device against that resistance may cause catheter fragmentation. Okay. Those are some really good good points that you have brought out there. And a lot of information we covered in a short period of time over ear and catheter embolism. Do you have any other thoughts mm -hmm. or things that you would want us to know about, Mark, before we end the podcast for today? No, I think I think we've done a good job at covering the basics and, and gone into some good details on what we would want to watch for and uh, help prevent these complications from occurring. Excellent. Thank you so much. There was uh, really some great information, and I appreciate you taking the time of, out of your busy day to speak with us on this today. I also want to let everybody know that you have provided some references on the materials you spoke of, and I will make sure that those are in our show notes as well. So, Mark, thanks again for joining us on our podcast. Thanks.